Hey, Julie, we're back. It's Sunday. Yes. October indeed. 18th. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff to report on, and uh, it's been a very interesting week. Our, our week, the first week back from our little vacation in North Carolina. Yeah, so we're going to just throw out the normal Sunday warning. This is not our normal Sunday podcast. So if you just happen across this podcast, and uh, this is the first time you've listened to us, and you get about 15, 20 minutes into it, and you think we're loons, just remember, the Sunday podcast is all about Julie and I just talking about whatever is of personal interest to us. And we might occasionally sprinkle in some real estate stuff. I mean, we usually do, because that's obviously probably dominates 90% of our cerebrum. But the reality of it is, is Sunday is unhinged, unscripted. We have some ideas of what we're going to talk about, but it's not like a normal daily uh, podcast. And I also want to thank all of you for continuing to make our podcast the number one listened to daily podcast in the nation. Uh, I was going to say for realtors, but the truth is, is I know we're picking up a lot of general listenership of the, in the entrepreneurial you know, realm. So that's great as well. Um, and yeah, we have a lot to talk about. So Julie, welcome to our Sunday podcast. Yes, thank you. You as well. Where would you like to start? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll have the screen right in front of me. I was actually just studying statistics for the podcast since we were just talking about it. Yes. And I was looking, I always, it's always fascinating to me to look at, see what the top, these are the top uh, 10 most downloaded episodes. And it's, it's fascinating to me because it really does give us an insight, obviously, as to what you guys want to listen to. But we can also then, um, through these statistics, through uh, Podbean, which is what we use, we can then dig in and find out, like, at what point did someone stop listening and just all the other good stuff. So I'll tell you guys, the number one listen to podcast we have of the most 10 of the recent 10 podcasts are 2021 real estate predictions. What happens next for housing? That's number one. That podcast got picked up in a lot of different places and went viral for a little bit. So that one doesn't surprise me. And then the other, I guess there's no titles on there that really surprised me, to be honest with you. Um, you know, here, this is interesting. How to stop procrastinating. I know. like I, It's funny. At least, you know, listening to the podcast is a good start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Well, so, you know, sometimes you and I will do a podcast and we'll think it'd be something that people really like to listen to and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So it's, it's good fascinating. to have the analytics. I'll tell you one thing. If you guys are doing podcasts, anytime you have the word Zillow in your title, you're going to get a lot of downloads because here's the other podcast titles I see that have a lot of downloads. Zillow brokerage is here. Now what? Another podcast we did was the Zillow thread is real. Are you paying attention? That one had a lot of downloads. Um and here's another one. Why EXP Realty, Zillow, and Opendoor will dominate real estate. So you get the idea. Agents are obviously very, very fascinated by Zillow, as they should be, because it's our premise, if you can go and listen to those podcasts, that Zillow, EXP, Realty, and some hybrid probably of Redfin or you know, Opendoor, you know, those, there's going to be a lot of, um, I think the conversations we've been having about who the most dominant real estate brands are in the country is those conversations are completely rounding the bend and you're going to see this emergence of completely new um, ways of thinking about real estate, but more specifically thinking about real estate franchises and how real estate agents are going to operate and intermingle with um, their chosen brokerage. So you know what? This would be a, oh, you know what? I wanted to show this to you too. Um, let me see. It's in statistics. I always forget how to get here. So I wanted to show Julie. I've not shown her this before. Okay, I think it's here. Yeah, here it is. All right, look oh at this. Gosh. No, no, just look the at this. Call. This is crazy. All right, so look, these are all here. I'm going to go to that down this way too. So what I'm showing, Julie, listeners, are all the different countries that we have listeners in. Now, granted, the bottom list, they might just be statistical uh, anomalies because we only have like one listener in Taiwan and one listener in uh, Slovakia Tanzania. and Tanzania, Jordan, uh, Jordan uh, Chile, uh, Brazil, Bermuda, 
mm. Bahrain, Bangladesh. But then you start getting up into these multiples, and those are those are probably yeah. less likely to be uh, anomalies. Turkey, Nepal, Norway, Jamaica, Egypt, Denmark. That's pretty cool. Isn't that amazing? This. So so we're we're actually this podcast though I don't really want to give one Ireland. list. One Sorry. listener credit for us to have that. Email. No, but but a special shout out to all of you guys listening yonder. Get but get into Sometimes this. Sometimes way yonder. Ireland, Hungary, Peru, Serbia. Yeah, I know. Pretty interesting. So these are all places in the world where people are listening to our podcast. That's what I'm showing Julie. Is this global map? But now Julie, it's more than 54 countries. Look at that. It's crazy. Moldova, Argentina, Iran. I mean, huh. eight listeners in Iran. Isn't that incredible? I bet they're servicemen. Italy. Well, that was Something our like that, that was our. That was our theory, but I'm not sure if it's right. Julie and I were theorizing that we were picking up a lot of listeners for our podcast wherever there were military bases around the country. But there's no military base in uh, Moldova or Moldova. Where the heck is Moldova? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I don't even know, right? I mean, there's no U.S. military base in India, for example. There's no military base in Switzerland or Romania or New Zealand. New Zealand could be all my relatives. Yeah, that's true. It could be all your relatives. (laughs) That's probably exactly what it is. Or Oman. Okay, there's no U.S. military base in Mexico, and yet, you know, look at how many Mm. people we had listened. So this is quite amazing. Our podcast, and this is a cool thing about podcasting. Now, Guam doesn't surprise me. Puerto Rico doesn't surprise me. Czech Republic kind of does. Nigeria kind of does. Look how many listeners we have in Nigeria. Nigeria. amazing. Look at Germany. I mean, isn't that incredible? Definitely. Bosnia, Herzegovina. I didn't even pronounce it right. Herzegovina. Yeah. Maybe. 81. (laughs) 81 people in Bosnia- and however, Julie just pronounced it. Greece. Look at the look at Greece statistic. What's no, what's number one after the U.S.? Canada. That makes sense. Yep. So uh, look at we have listeners Australia in Australia too. Aust- right? Yeah. Well, yeah. no, actually, yeah, Australia is number three. So Panama, Vietnam, uh, Spain. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing, and then especially that the Ukraine is number four. Ukraine. How are we having people <laughs> in the Ukraine? Know. So are Ukrainian listeners? Shout out to you. Thank you for listening to us and making this the number one listened to daily podcast in the United States. Um, and then, I mean, it was 72,000 downloads in, in, the, uh, uh, in the U.S. alone. And this is just registered through Podbean. So, I mean, this is just the r- most recent statistics. So, guys, listen, thank you for making this number one listened to daily podcast. We are actually trying to create more international content. Um, but maybe the real reason so many of you are listening is because you like our Sunday podcast so much when we talk about things like aliens and Bigfoot. <laughs> right. Which we <laughs> like, like So let's, let's get to some of the Looney Tunes stories that you and I have found. I shouldn't say this because we're going to insult. Should we ramp them into it with a little credit snippet or what do you want to do? Oh, you want to take do something serious before we do something silly? <laughs> That's fine. Actually, I'll tell you, let's do something well, serious. Well, I'll make it fun though because it, it has been a game for me. Well, so um, one of the things that's interesting uh, that Julie's been fascinated with for a long time is the the credit scoring system. Because credit scoring is something that we have a lot of, um, like our coaching clients personally and through their um, their own you know real estate clients, they having problems getting loans and just the whole thing is obviously designed to be very confusing. And so Julie took it on. Her, now she got started on this when she was working on our Harris Rules book. Did credit uh, any credit? Uh, stuff a, make it? I think in the appendix, and then I'm I'm also going to dust off a little two or three day podcast series. Yeah, you should because this is something that comes up both you know with our personal clients working on their own stuff, but of course all of their clients are real estate clients, and so everybody's affected by the credit score every day. Everything you do, getting a new cell phone, getting insurance, right. Um, you know, opening bank accounts and certainly applying for real estate loans. Right. So yeah. the credit the credit scoring, you know, 
thing is, like Julie said, it affects all aspects of your life more than when you're just trying to go alone. And that's the thing a lot of people don't quite understand. And we didn't understand it until we started researching it for our book, Harris Rules. So along those lines, I can pull up that article, Julie. I got yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. Along those lines, let me find it. It um, Julie has took it on. Now, so Julie and I have not been, we don't do a lot of borrowing. I mean, we, we've almost always, just for the last, you know, at least 15 years, always tried to pay cash. Um, but it was still fascinating for us to go through and understand how the whole credit scoring game works. And I'll, I will say that I think with interest rates as low as they are right now, which are just amazing, you can get an interest rate lower than 3% on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage you know, with, for a qualifying loan. I don't think, honestly, it does not make sense for, uh, for you not to pay cash for when borrowing money when the money's that cheap. We've talked on this podcast a lot about uh, inflation or deflation, like what comes next. I think the jury is in, and I think it's clearly going to be an inflationary cycle that we're going to start experiencing in earnest, especially next year. Now, again, if you're a first-time listener, I'll just summarize it. When you have inflation, well, so let's go back. Deflation is what the country and the, really the world experienced after the 2007-2008 crash, right? Real estate prices crashed, but really everything went down in value. Stock market went down in value. Gold even went down in value. Everything went down in value for a blank. And then what happened in 2009, things started appreciating again. Or really what you saw were the benefits of all the quantitative easing or all the money that was being injected into the economy. And that was causing more, obviously, um, more people to be liquid and have the ability to borrow money. And that caused asset prices to increase. But now what you're seeing after the COVID epidemic is you're going to see, and we already are seeing it, the cost of virtually everything's going up uh, for a whole host of reasons. When we are just in Murphy, North Carolina, as Julia was just talking about, and uh, don't worry, listeners, we are going to talk a little bit about Bigfoot today. What? What? Hold on. What? They're talking about credit. Now they're talking about Bigfoot. That's right. We said it. <laughs> like I said, it's the Sunday show. So um, what were we just talking about? <laughs> The price of things going up. Right. So the building materials even have gone through the roof. So you're going to see more inflation. The cost of a new home is going to go through the roof. The, and what that does then is that inflation trickles down to other things like resale. So if you, for example, are thinking about building a house and it's going to cost you, you know, $500,000 uh, or more, but that house is going to be smaller and maybe not, you know, just that you can buy a resale and you're going to be able to essentially have more square footage. Maybe it needs some remodeling or whatnot. Maybe it's even on a better lot. But normally, new construction is going to uh, outsell resale. But now what you're going to see, and you're seeing it, is resale starting to outsell new construction because it also it, it offers a better value. So what happens ultimately is all these reasons and more, prices are, start, are going to dramatically increase on real estate. Now, the Fed has said they have an inflation target of 2%. Now, if you translate what that means, it means that there are wanting to have over time the average inflationary, uh, inflation rate be 2%, which means it could be over 2% by some margin and they'll still say it's in range because they were trying to have the average be 2%. Um, again, if you don't care to under, understand what I'm saying, it's fine. Here's the bottom line as it relates to you. Real estate values are going to increase. Now, some people will call it in, um, appreciation, but the truth is it's inflation. And inflation simply is where the cost of uh, obviously something increases now, if it was straight up, um, say, appreciation, that means that, for example, your house would in, uh, appreciate in value and be worth more, and you'd have the psychological benefit of feeling wealthier. Uh, and at the same time, other things that you wanted to purchase were at the pre-appreciation price. And yet, so that made it so that if your house that you bought for three hundred dollars worth five hundred in three years, well, you're you know you've increased your net worth by quite a bit. But it doesn't really matter if everything else costs 
has have also risen and and so you you know your gallon of milk that you bought would have bought when you bought your house for 300 grand you know for five dollars now costs ten dollars so the buying benefit or the actual power of the increased value of your house and your increased wealth is sort of negated by the fact that everything else has also risen in cost and that's what inflation is now you're going to see in the news and i'm starting to see it already and we again talked about this on our podcast before uh, people are going to start using the word hyperinflation. So what happens with hyperinflation is, it, and again, I know we talked about this in our podcast before, that goes back to um, the idea, and you, most of you have seen this picture of you know somebody pushing a wheelbarrow around, and these pictures were taken uh, in Germany, actually. Um, and a wheelbarrow around with cash in it. Right, and this supposedly happened in the United States, too, where you'd the money would be worth nothing, in essence, and you'd be having to take a wheelbarrow of cash to the grocery store just to buy groceries. And so that's what hyperinflation is. So when hype, so inflationary times feels good to most people that have assets because your value of your stuff goes up. That's the cycle we're in now. Now there's no guarantee that one thing leads to the other. So inflation, um, and even a lot of inflation, doesn't equal hyperinflation. But here's where the rubber meets the roads, and here's where it gets problematic. If all of a sudden you have inflation and you have a lot of increasing of costs. Um, That means, first of all, it starts in asset prices. It'll start, and it has already, obviously. I mean, used car values right now are something like in terms of the uh, ratio of uh, MSRP to what they're worth. Supposedly, used car values are worth more now than they have been sometimes, something like the last 20 or 30 years. So if you had a used car that you bought two or three years ago, and you wanted to go and trade it in or sell it, you could sometimes sell that thing for, you know, in some cases, I was reading like 90, 95% of what it would have cost two years ago. So a lot of people are then saying, well, why don't I just sell my used car and go buy a new one? And that's what's starting to happen. But the new car prices are going through the roof too because the cost of building the new cars. So this Which again- brings us to financing. Well, right. And so in, am, I, am I talking too long about this? Well, <laughs> I mean, but you're interrupting all, my me. point is that it's all related, right? Yeah. But so just on the other side of it, just to summarize- it all feels good, especially in real estate, because as home prices inflate in value, increase in cost, so do your commissions. So your commissions are going to increase as well. You know, 6% or 5%, whatever your commission rate is, of, of whatever the house sells for means you get a raise along with the inflated price of the house. Where the problem happens is when the inflation really starts to make it into consumer goods, groceries and things like that, you know, fuels, everything. And that means that unless uh, people's wages have increased, um, commensurately with the inflation rate, then you have a real problem because people then can't uh, buy groceries. Thus, the wheelbarrow is full of cash going to the grocery store. Now, we are again, there's no guarantee that inflation leads to hyperinflation. In the United States, um, during the last big inflationary time, uh, during the Carter administration uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, that was huge amounts of inflation. Paul Verkel, uh, you know, raised interest rates and the whole thing. There was no hyperinflation, so it doesn't have to, you know, lead in like what Argentina did in, in Venezuela. It doesn't have to end that way, is what I'm trying to say. So don't worry about the hyperinflation yet. And if and Julie and I are really paying attention to this topic because what happens during hyperinflation is that's when people don't have the ability to borrow and buy stuff, and that's when real estate prices crash. So at the very end of this cycle. Of hyper after hyperinflation, things aren't worth anything because nobody wants to buy them. Um, and there was a very famous quote that said, and this was by a guy named Baron von Rothschild. He said, "When there's blood on the streets, buy real estate." Now that was written. I have to, I should have memorized this but as to when that quote. I think it was um, in France when there was some kind of hyperinflation, and it was back in like the 1600s. I don't know the whole thing. 
But that was the gist of it. So what he was saying is when you, if you have the ability to purchase things and when this hyperinflation starts creating a lot of uh, obviously um, complete price destruction because people don't have the confidence or the ability to buy things, that's when you can pick stuff up on sale. But again, we're far, far away from that and there's no guarantee we're going to experience hyperinflation, which does lead to Julie's topic, which is the credit uh, conversation. Yes. I mean, when rates are low, it, you should definitely be considering borrowing, you know, for a car, for a house, et cetera, at least consider it and compare. So if you were to interview the average person on the street, what makes up your credit score? What do you think most people would say? Um, I would say your on-time payments, probably the percent that you've borrowed against your income, things like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And that's definitely true, but not all things are weighted equally. So I've been playing this little game, which goes like this. With our own credit, With our own credit. Yeah. Can I actually achieve the golden 850 yeah is it possible and what would you have to do if you know to get there right so 850 is the top score and i've been kind of playing around with different things based on the following facts so your payment history yes is the most influential part of your credit score but it's not as much as most people think it's 35 percent of your score now the next part is the amount owed so you should be thinking about like what can i control right well, you know, hopefully you can control your payments, your payment history. Sometimes you can negotiate something. I, I'm sure that some of our listeners here have been furloughed or, un, you know, are having some financial struggles. You need to talk to your creditors and see what you can work out. Uh, the amount owed, so this is called your credit ratio. How much is owed versus how much you could owe, right? So if you've got a credit line for $10,000 and you owe three, your credit utilization is 30%. And all by all three credit bureaus say that you should strive for 30% or less credit utilization to improve your score. The length of your credit history, well, you can kind of control that, but you know, some of you guys have college age kids and you know, you've been holding them off maybe from credit cards. They should have something to start building a history. You can also use utility payments to build credit history. Uh, and then new credit, they, okay, sorry. So uh, length of credit history is 15% of your score. New credit is 10%. So you can actually damage your credit just by applying for a lot of new credit. I need that graph. Go back. And Sorry. then the mixture of credit is 10%, which is something that people don't really um, think about. But they are looking, you have a higher score if you have credit cards and you have a mortgage and you have something else that you're paying on. Um, it could be a boat or a motorcycle or something. They like you to have different types of loans that you're paying on. So history is 35%, amount is 30%, length of credit history 15%, new credit you've been applying for is 10, and credit mix is 10. And this is why, you know, realtors advise their clients who are in contract, don't go out and finance a new boat. Don't finance the furniture you're gonna move into your new house because that is the new credit score. Even though you're not obviously hurting your credit, you can damage your credit. And what that can do, even if that's five or 10 points, if they are pre-approved on their loan based on a 720 credit score and they drop below 700, they could have underwriting problems. Well, so here's the thing that listeners don't know if they have not been selling real estate as long as we have. What happens in during the real estate crash is that the banks actually started to target um, specific industries and for essentially not giving them loans or in some cases pulling in their credit lines. And that was what Julie and I were fearful of happening for a lot of you guys back when the COVID crisis hit, because we saw the banks do it back when the real estate crisis hit. If you had a credit line or a home equity line, anything that was giving you access to cash and the banks knew you were in the real estate business and they were fearful of the real estate industry, they would 
cap your credit line or they would cancel your uh, your loan. So a lot of you who have your savings in the form of a HELOC are, um, you know, that's not wise. You should definitely be having your money in the form of cash or well, gold. And this happened not because people were missing their payments. No. It, it was because the bank said so. Right. And so that's the reason we're reading all this to you. And, and so the point of this, and I think this next little section about Vantage Score is interesting. Mm-hmm. The point of all this is that the credit you here's the little epiphany Julie and I had when we were working on Harris Rules, right? And if you guys haven't purchased Harris Rules yet, I think it's over four hundred five star reviews on Amazon. It's available at every major bookseller, including Barnes and Noble. We've seen it for sale at airports. Um, so thank you for continuing to make that one of the best selling real estate books in history. And it's also available on Audible. We're getting a lot of great feedback on the Audible version. Uh, we did hire somebody or the publisher hired somebody professional to read it. And he did such a better job than what yeah. Julie and I ever would have done. Very happy with that. Yeah. So we vamped too much. Plus I, I didn't have to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even better. What he got it done is so, so fantastic. Yeah. People love it. Well, so Van- so it's called Harris Rules. Just go to Amazon and get it. So Vantage Score. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to read this to you. Vantage Score doesn't assign specific percentages to factors, uh, but it does state that some factors are more influential than others. Here's how Vantage Score breaks down. Now, before Julie reads this next section to you, here's what you got to remember. Who is the customer, ultimately, of their credit reporting agencies? Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, right? Who Who is their customer? Who is it they – Who? where do they earn their money, Right. They don't earn from you unless you're paying for some supplemental, you know, whiz-bang thing they come out with. Their customer are, are the banks, are the people lending you money. So you have to be thinking. It's a little bit convoluted, but just follow me with this logic. Do the banks want to charge you more or less interest, right? The banks want your – your don't forget about Right, points. points, right? They don't necessarily want you to have the greatest of credit so they can then obviously rationalize charging you more credit or charging more in, in interest and fees and whatnot. So when you think about how asinine this it's is, twisted. it is twisted. The credit reporting agencies work for the banks. The banks have a vested interest in your credit not being great so they can make more money off of you, which means the credit reporting agencies, and I don't care what they say, are obviously going to be, since their customer are the banks, they're going to want to work against you know consumers so their credit scores aren't that high. And this is the reason, frankly, there's so much government you know hubbub about the credit scoring and credit reporting agencies and all this other Mickey Mouse that's gone on. And all this credit reporting stuff has become highly politicized on all the different agencies and whatnot. But this is also the reason why the credit reporting agencies don't just give you exact information on what you can do to have an 850 credit score. It's almost like the old days of SEO internet marketing where, you know, these black hat guys, that's, you know, basically people that were trying to figure out the Google algorithm and all this crazy stuff. You know, they would they'd come out with some sort of, oh, I discovered this little gray area on how you can you know, get your search results boosted on Google or Yahoo or whatever the search you know index was back in the day. And but it wouldn't be published. Like Google wouldn't come out and say, these are the 10 things you have to do to get a number one placement under the word real estate. Right. You'd have to figure it out or had, you know, tech black hat, you know, geek guys figure it out for you. Well, this this credit reporting thing is just as opaque. It's so wackadoodle that there hasn't been some sort of you know public outrage to the realization that your credit score is definitely not going to be something. You, you're, the credit reporting agencies are not your advocates. They don't. They no, want it's credit jenga. You know, it is like credit if, jenga. If I pull this little block out, what does it affect? And if I put this one in, what does it affect? And, you know, it it is twisted also that, you know, somebody that maybe doesn't have a great credit score ends up paying more 
How's that going to help them? I know, it's crazy. Right? And has to put down more and has to pay more points and commit to a crappier interest rate. Well, before we get to the so. specific things that this next reporting agency pays attention to, when did you really start on this personal project? Uh, probably 60 days ago, I think. Okay, maybe. so 60 days ago. Uh-huh. I don't care. I don't care if you tell me what our credit okay. scores were. What were our our credit scores? I Do you remember? think... Let me think about that because I'm only writing up and we really high don't, scores. Right we now. really don't use our credit. It, I think it was like 780. Let's see. Was it 787? For a while, it was like 750 something. Um, and so I started looking into this knowing, and I already knew about these. What was the ratios. lowest score of the three? Do you remember? 709 was the 709. Worst. Okay. And so in that last 60 days, yes. you got in our Experian up to 847, yeah. Equifax up to 834, and TransUnion up to 814. Which is also interesting that they don't ever match. I know. It's know. crazy. Well, again, they all so... they have their different Jenga methods. But, but here's why. Mm-hmm. Because when you're applying for credit, what they're going to do is you apply for a loan and a mortgage loan, and the, the, the mortgage company will say, well, yes, Julie Harris, you basically have perfect credit for Equifax and, and uh, Experian, but guess what? We only pay attention to TransUnion, yeah, the lowest credit totally, score. They totally, and you know what? If the next person that's applying... It's flipped. They'll say, well, we only tri- you know, pay attention to Experian. Whatever your lowest one is, is the one they're going to use on you. Well, of course. Some of them will blend them, but they're not going to just take your high score. No. So, so you again. do have to work on all three. So knowing all of this little crazy ratios, um, you know, like the Vantage, you've got your FICO score is Experian, Equifax, TransUnion. Your Vantage score isn't a score, but it is put together based on, again, payment history. That makes sense. Age and type of credit. These two things are the most influential Percent of credit limit used. Again, if you have a, a high credit limit, but you're only using 30% or less, you're going to do better. Your total balances versus your debt. And then less influential for them are the credit card behavior and inquiries. They make the Vantage score is less uh, influenced by that, as well as your available credit. So um, the things that I've been, and I hate to call it gaming it, but that's really, I am playing the credit game to see. I'm not doing anything no, she was um, unethical. It, I'm just trying to work their system. You're, you're trying to validate. Obviously, guys, Julie and I are always working on. Game. We're always working on concepts for a next uh, book, and we use these uh, podcasts a lot of times to sort of you know work through concepts and ideas and see what. If frankly, we go and look on Podbean to see if you guys downloaded the podcast oh, yeah. and listen to it, and we then determine whether or not. Um, that particular topic that maybe Julie and I found interesting was interesting to you. And if it wasn't, well, guess what? It's not going to make it to our next book or my, maybe not even become a normal podcast. But that's how we go about refining what it is that we're going to be spending more time trying to research uh, and become very competent at, if not expert level at. But what Julie then did is she then went on her own, uh, did a lot of research, talked to some people and found out what little, you know, because this article that uh, we're reading this article from Credit Karma, that's where we got these two little things from that we just read to you. But their their conclusions are how to get a higher credit score, pay your bills on time, make sure there's no negative marks on your credit, keep credit rules. It's all the name, it's all the usual. That's so, all standard issue stuff. Right. There are other things that you can do. Okay, so tell so, them. So little known fact, what do you think is better to do? Pay off a credit card completely or pay it down to 30%? Uh, well, I would assume have it completely paid off. No, guess why? Because if you pay it all the way off, now you have more available credit, <laughs> which now hurts you. Okay, That's crazy. so you're actually better off to watch and do the math. And keep a little balance. Now, if you're paying a 25% interest rate on that, that's just stupid. But if it's a reasonable interest rate or not a lot of money, you'd pay it down. You don't necessarily pay it off. And that includes all of your credit, right? Okay, so that's a little known fact. Um, let's see. On Experian in particular, 
if you go to their website, you have to sign up, have a username and passcode so you can look at all of your stuff. They have something called Experian 8, which is if you give them access to your to look at your bank accounts and search for utility bill payments that are made regularly on time, your your score can go up, they say, between 5 and 12 points. Yeah, but what you told I me— I did that, and I think it went up 11 points. But what you told me is that when you did—they wanted access to your— They love data. Your bank statements, right? Yes. Yeah. So you had to give them access to our That's bank right. statements so they could actually see— but the, you also That's gave right. them optics on what our total income was. Yes, they see everything. Right. They, so really, the more data you give them access to, the happier they are, and it does affect your score. Okay. I watched it. I literally have been watching this daily to see the things that I do, how they're impacting it. Um, now, on each of them, so you don't want to just work on one. You don't want to only work on Experian. You want to do Equifax and TransUnion. It's the same action, just a different platform for all of them. Um, so what you want to do is find out. They'll actually, there's a little thing you can click on what's affecting my credit. And so if there is, like I found an old, uh, wasn't cell phone, was like a cable bill when, when we moved from Texas. And I called and I said, I'm, I'm closing down my service. I think I'm at a zero balance. And they, you know, I thought everything was fine. Well, 90 days later, they wanted us to return the equipment, which was worth $179, the cable box, you know. And so that got reported to... Um, credit or to you know collections and that was affecting our credit $179 erroneous bill okay so what do you do you click on dispute this information on the screen it will give a drop down box paid off not my bill not right information whatever then you write a description and you submit it and like a week later you know unless they've got some way to prove that you shouldn't be disputing it. It goes away, and your credit goes up. Right, just like that. Again, so this will affect your uh, affect your insurance rates. This affects your everything. I, so credit is used not just again for applying for loans. You have to be thinking, you know, holistically about what your credit score is and what you could be doing to positively affect it. So here's another interesting article, mm-hmm. Julius. I told you a little bit about this one. Uh, the average FICO credit score hit a new record high during the pandemic. Here's why. You can go ahead and scan. Yeah, that, they right? let's see. Record. I was shocked that the average is 711, right? So 720 is considered excellent, and, and the average is 711. It may sound crazy that FICO scores actually went up during a time when tens of millions of Americans were, un- Americans were unemployed. Well, let me inject but, Let, let yeah, me interject. So, so here's my theory on this. Yeah. Remember I said credit scoring has become politicized? Mm-hmm. I would venture mm-hmm. a guess that the credit reporting agencies through, you know, political, politicalization yeah. of their, you know, they allowed or, you know, flipped a couple of levers inside their algorithms to make it so the average person's credit score was higher because uh-huh. of the fact that the uh, government wanted people to be able to borrow money. I, I and think that, something like that probably And happened. that is the exact opposite of what happened after 07. Yes. 07, 08, 09, it became harder to get credit. Yeah. And that would obviously, that completely slowed down the economy. And what it looks like anecdotally anyway, is that the credit reporting agencies were obviously put under some kind of political pressure to make it not only that credit scores didn't fall, that credit scores increased. And if you want any further uh, evidence of that, think about your mortgage forbearances. So when the mortgage forbearance thing came out in the original, what was the, the, what was the thing called? The act? Um, the CARES Act. The CARES Act, right. You, the government said you have to put your, the gov, uh, the, you know, 
banks have to allow people to put their houses in forbearance. In other words, no payments for six months, no payments for 12 months, and no penalties to, you know, no big balloon no payments. Negative the, no negative reporting, nothing, right? And so the banks, obviously, were trying to haggle something out with the uh, government. And at, at the beginning of that, they weren't following the CARES Act. Over time, they followed the CARES Act. And so now, if you put your house into forbearance and you're putting it in forbearance, all you have to say is you're adversely affected because the coronavirus pandemic, then you don't make house payments. And we told all of you guys to seriously consider doing this back when that became available uh, in April, May of this year. Now, we told you to do that, not necessarily because you needed um, to save the money, frankly, but in worst case scenario, in case this time of year was going to be darker than, say, for April, May, and June, or what were people were, you know, no one knew what was going to happen. So Julie and I were we are trying to do our best strike. Right. We're trying to do our best to help you guys hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. And a lot of you did it and you put your mortgages in forbearance. You were still able to make your payments. Most of you, I'm sure most, if not all of you had, some of you are having your best years ever, but look, your mortgages have been in forbearance. Now take them off forbearance, start making the payment again. Right. Uh, but the banks weren't supposed to negatively report it on your credit bureau. Matter of fact, you could refinance your house while you were in forbearance. So these are all things that basically, I think, lend to my theory that you saw a massive government intervention into essentially keeping the economy afloat in ways that probably we don't even, we don't completely yeah. comprehend yet. It's not like they're going to send you an article about it. No. But, but I think is... that this, I mean, we have evidence of it though. Right. So this is all good though, to your point, because in the initial months of the pandemic, that was the freak out, right? What's going to happen? Is this going to be like 08 and 09? the heck's going to go on? And I think that's why a lot of people did the forbearance. But what are you looking at? The the increase? Yeah, well, it's so, right through so, pandemic so months. So April, right? April 2020, the average credit score was 705. And now the average credit score is over. Now, and here's, it's over 710, 711, 712. And so here's the thing that's really fascinating about that. It's not like the credit reporting agencies didn't know mm-hmm. that people were, frankly, um, furloughed. Right. It's not like they didn't know that, you know, Bob works in the restaurant industry and there's probably an excellent chance the restaurant industry isn't coming back. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I'm going to say this for the third time because it's really important. They did absolutely, the banks did absolutely uh, stop lending to anybody in the real estate industry back 07, 08, 09. Yes, definitely. They absolutely made it. It so wasn't just realtors. It was mortgage people, anybody. It was appraisers, home right. inspectors, anything related. So they were predicting that specific segments of the economy were going to basically have, you know, massive headwinds. And they could have done the same thing, and they could have had the same results, but they didn't. As a matter of fact, what they did is they made a borrowing money more accessible at the same time the government started pumping trillions of dollars into the economy. What are you catching? Yeah, well, so this this little part here shows you that the different things that impact, right? Um, staying current on your payments is 35%. We just talked about that. It's worth noting that forbearance and defer- deferment agreements do not cause a FICO score to drop, and that debt levels have also gone uh, down. It makes an impact since credit utilization or the ratio of money you have on your credit cards to the amount of credit you have, that's gone down. That's kind of surprising to me since people, you know, we're buying a lot on Amazon, but maybe overall, <laughs> um, you know, so this is all good news, I think is, is the bottom line. And there's some more data on here. We should probably uh, maybe post some of this, but yeah. it's very interesting stuff. And, you know, maybe it's not you, maybe you're really on top of your credit scores, but again, the way lenders are um, scrutinizing things now, if you've got a borrower and they're not able to, you know, they're they're like, I'm not ready for six months because I have to work on my credit. You should know how to help. You don't have to be a credit advisor or a credit correction agency, but you should know the basic facts about credit. You should be able to explain it to somebody. 
and help them work on it. And maybe, you know, seven or eight points gets them over the finish line. And then your job is to keep them over the finish line. Well, I appreciate you saying they should be helping their customers. But frankly, when we were putting this together for today. We wanted to help them. Yeah. I wanted to help them, yeah. Because they're the ones that, they're our customers, you know. That's right. <laughs> so uh, as far as that goes, guys, make sure you're paying attention to all this stuff. Because here's the flip side to this. If in the future there are some buying opportunities and you have access, you, you can access access very very low interest rate money. Um, you might have buying opportunities of a lifetime to and pick you'll have up. Have to put less money down. Yeah, exactly. If you want. So they're probably regardless of who wins the election. There's no reason to believe interest rates are going to be increasing. Um, now, will the banks start putting overlays on? Will the banks try to start basically tightening their lending standards in ways that the government's not going to tell them to do it? Yep. I mean, we heard um, people applying for new mortgages that are coming off of uh, forbearance that the banks are making before you can even apply for a new mortgage through like Wells Fargo. They're making it so you have to have, what, three payments? You have an option. You can either pay on time. So post forbearance, you're paying you know 90 days on time or you get to catch up the entire amount that you missed. So. That's if you're applying for a new mortgage. Right. right. So not every bank's going to operate like that, but you're going to see the banks putting overlays on top of things because they're not, you know, they're still uncertain about what next year is going to hold as far as a recession or whatnot. And and we don't talk about politics on this, but I think what on this podcast, but I think what's really important you guys understand is it doesn't, I mean, it does matter who wins the election, right? Of course it does. But does it matter in the sense that there won't be equal, if not more opportunities into next year? There always are going to be people, and this is the cool thing about real estate in general. So those of you who are listening to us that are business owners and not in real estate, <laughs> you might want to tune us out. But real estate is one of the only industries in the world that essentially is in demand no matter what's going on in the economy, <laughs> yes. right? No matter, matter of fact, even if interest rates are high, you're still seeing a massive demand in real estate because people always need a place to live. That's one of the, I mean, if you think about what an amazing thing that is that you happen to find yourself in an industry where everybody needs what you have to sell. That's, and you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to buy your inventory. Right. So you can go out and you follow our coaching system and you basically learn how to be a listing agent. You can go out and list, you know, millions of dollars worth of real estate that you don't have to pay for. So if you were to open up, you know, Julie's Pie Shop, right, and you were to open up it in a retail store, think of all the expenses that are associated with that. It just all the expenses. It's it's extraordinary. I remember. Um, I bet you it would cost an average uh, entrepreneur to open up like a Chick Fil A or even Julie's Pie Shop, a couple hundred, maybe three hundred, two hundred, you know, sure. hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. and opened up a big franchise. Probably cost you millions of dollars, and that's before you even turn a profit. And you might not even turn a profit for years. Unlike real estate, you can get your real estate license. You can learn how to be a listing agent. You can then go out and follow our proactive lead generation uh, system that we teach you guys to use. You then can go out and generate 5, 10, 20 listings. And those listings, you don't have to pay for. Those are your inventory. Whereas if you were Julie's Pie Shop, you'd have recurring expense for just keeping the lights and open. And it could even go bad. Your inventory, your ingredients. Yeah. You know, there's a clock's ticking. Yeah, with Julie's no. Pie Shop. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Whereas with real estate, again, you don't have to pay for the inventory. I know some of you have never conceptualized that, but this is one of the key fundamental reasons why being a listing agent will always be the most powerful position in real estate. So one of the other topics, Julie, and then we can talk about some strange things. Yeah. Um, one of the other topics that we're, it's really being uh, churned about inside the industry are people's fear of uh, buyer agent commissions. And we've been preparing you guys for the idea that buyer agent commissions would no longer be an entitlement of the real estate transaction for years. We've been telling you for years because back in the late 90s, 
and I again, this might not still be uh, relevant, but there was a little weird clause that got added to um, mortgage origination, or you could, here's the essence of it, you could finance in your buyer's agent's commission into the real estate transaction. I always thought that was interesting. So you can actually, as a borrower, go and apply for a loan and you can actually include a buyer's agent commission as a financeable thing in a transaction. That to me was very telling of what the future was going to hold. Now, I don't know if that's still uh, possible to do as part of a loan, but but if it is, which I suspect it is, then you're going to see a lot of different versions of how buyer agent commissions are being paid. One of which is going to be obviously the borrower paying it themselves through the loan. Another might be who knows what, right? Now, do I think, and and Julie and I have thought about this a lot, do we think there's going to be some sort of complete stopping of buyer agency? It's impossible. And if you cut through all the Mickey Mouse and Malaise, the real reason why is because people need local experts. There has been a massive movement, a surge, essentially, to disintermediate agents, remove them from the middle since the 90s. Every whiz-bang company that came to town always basically tried to do the same thing. They ultimately wanted to try to get their piece of the real estate commissions by essentially taking it from the real estate industry, right? That's what happened in a lot of other industries. I won't bore you with history, but that's what everyone was always fearful of happening in real estate. And yet, 30 years later, it hasn't happened. And matter of fact, the biggest company that could have maybe had a shot at doing it, Zillow, they actually joined us. They're becoming a national real estate brokerage. Yes, they'll have salaried employees and yes, there'll be restrictions and it'll be a different business model. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, why hasn't the model fundamentally changed? Was it because the tech companies weren't smart enough or didn't have enough money? No. Why didn't, is it because the you know, real estate brokerages were so good that the tech companies couldn't compete with the real estate industry? No. The real reason why the industry hasn't changed and you're still part of a transaction is because your buyers and sellers want you to be. That's why. Because mm-hmm. consumer demand dictates that there's a, an agent that's part of the transaction and there always will be. Um, that'll never change. And for a whole bunch of different reasons, but it really goes back down to the fact that most people are not equipped emotionally to make these big buying decisions and it doesn't happen very frequently in their lives and they want somebody who they perceive to be an expert to help them with that process and that's true with all major things it's look if you look at for example we talked about this last week uh, about wealth building and if you look at why like financial advisors right they're just essentially commission salespeople, many of them all these financial guys that you go to for advice and all the rest of it they're selling you commissioned products And it doesn't take much for you to figure out how much commission they're making. And again, listen to last week's podcast about all this. But the moral of the story is still people still do it. Why? Because they're not comfortable making what they perceive to be a stressful decision without the guidance of an an expert, right? Or what they perceive to be an expert. And that's the same thing with real estate. And that'll always be the same thing with real estate. Real estate can't be commoditized. It can't. No house is the same. Every single one of them are different, you know, obviously. But then you have... The nuance difference is that only a local expert will know. The nuance difference would be why is this side of the street better than that side of the street? Why is this more desirable than that? And those are the things that you will never be able to have a tech company or certainly a salaried employee at a tech company uh, replace. So don't fear the reaper. (laughs) No, I mean, can you imagine buyers and sellers negotiating a home inspection with each other? Forget about it. <laughs> they barely survive it with professionals on both sides. That's for sure. So, and I mean, even on a personal level, you know, our North Carolina um, house, that agent was friends with a developer who we wouldn't have known was the next door neighbor for that house. Um, personal connections. And, you know, we're closing with a an attorney in our normal professional life. We used regular title and escrow. So she knows all about that. 
and she's been able to do a great job explaining the differences. You know, I, I think she definitely has value. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I... But, I would, but we didn't know. use the buyer's agent. We went right no, to the listing agent. No, that's because we're us, but yeah. Right, but that's what most people are doing, yeah. which goes back to where this is probably going to evolve ultimately. Yeah. If you guys want to be in the real estate business for a long period of time, you have to be learn. You have to learn how to be a listing agent. Yes, because the, the listing agent has all the leverage, and and listings and being a listing agent isn't something you have to wait. You know, a thousand years and suffer through. You know, working with buyers endlessly and giving up all your nights and weekends in order to earn the right to be a listing That's a agent. Myth. And that right. is perpetuated by totally. brokers and office managers and team leaders or whatever. Right. Well, it's perpetuated by people who are passively generators and don't know how to proactively go after the business. So their thesis is the only listings you'll ever get are the buyers that you sell when they're ready to move up or move down. And that's total crap. Yep. I mean, you can absolutely choose right out of the gates to be a listing agent. And that's every broker office manager that's listening to us right now. You should be teaching your agents the importance of being listing agents because from that becomes uh, comes more leverage for your own lead generation. And without that, you're, look, if agents aren't going to focus all their best energies on becoming listing agents, then they're always going to be beholden to buying leads because they're not going to know how to, you know, you get so many buyer leads off one listing, guys. It's, and it's always been true. When Julie and I were selling real estate, interest rates were 6 7 8% when we first started selling real estate. You have to get that. Julie, you're okay. still plugged in? Yes. <laughs> she, she got an emergency phone call. It's Sunday. So... <laughs> from our security. But anyway, so the moral of the story is is that no matter what interest rates are doing, you're always going to have real estate transactions that are happening. So there's the logic for all that. Now we're going to move on. And Julie's going to pop back in here in a second. So one of the things I've been uh, paying attention to, which I think is really fascinating, you guys should Google this yourself, are the ramifications of what's happened in this post, well, I'll call it post-COVID era, but it's, you know, the vaccine's coming out. Supposedly it's going to be out in November and December, thank God. And that's a miracle in itself, by the way. So, um, you know, let's not worry about how many people are going to take it and all the politicization of that. The more, the miracle is that there's a vaccine, uh, never happened where there was a vaccine that was produced that fast in the history of any sort of uh, pandemic or virus or anything like that. So, but what's get what the pandemic did is it essentially liberated all of us from, did you get the other door? It liberated all of us from the um, sort of the mooring lines that have kept all of us from uh, being able to move outside of the cities and the you know areas where we could easily get employment or where we just felt comfortable. And there's an interesting statistic, and this has been true, I think, since the 50s or I think of basically maybe even the 40s. There's something like 95% of everyone is uh, you know born and dies within a 25-mile radius of the same exact spot. Which basically tells you that most people never move out of their obvious the area where they're from. Now, do they do that for, primarily for family reasons? I think you could make that argument, but the real reason is is because that's where they end up essentially getting jobs, and because they don't have the ability to work remotely, they don't, and so they stay in those geographic areas forever. And that's where that's essentially how a lot of the very fundamental theories about city planning and community planning have come in. That the idea was people would, you know, back in the Industrial Revolution, people came from the countryside and then they moved to the cities and the city centers were formed. And you guys have hopefully remember some of this from your, you know, your history classes. But what we're dealing now is we're dealing with uh, the unraveling of that because of the Internet. <laughs> That's what's amazing. For sure. And so, so let me just I won't read this whole article to you, but here's the gist of it. Uh, so uh, SpaceX owns a company called Starlink. And Starlink has been launching satellites, and Starlink is now beta testing essentially what is an extremely high-speed internet. 
And I didn't know they were beta testing. I only knew they were launching satellites, but I researched it this morning for you guys. So it's very possible within the next 12 months or less, every single one of you are going to, no matter where you live, and this is the main thing, it's for, so the, um, there was some government tax law or something that basically made it so that if there was a company that came around that was able to start providing internet service mm-hmm. to rural areas, mm-hmm. that they would get some sort of big tax incentive, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what uh, Elon Musk is doing with uh, Starlink. And there was an article I read this morning about how there's like this uh, these remote um, Indian tribes, reservations, mm-hmm. that they have never had internet access and of any variety. And they're great beta testers for this. Right. right. And they, that's yeah. where he went and basically installed yeah. the satellites so first. Awesome. So what he's done is they're called low-orbit satellites, and they're essentially blanketing primarily the United States first, but then it's going to be a global blanket of these low-orbit satellites. And these satellites, they actually move around. So the reason you want – and I I thought this was – again, this is Sunday, so we're going to talk about what we think is interesting. (laughs) So these are small satellites, and they actually will – they move around. They're not stationary. So the satellites are moving around the Earth, and they're moving around the Earth like a big net, if you can imagine that. So these satellites, what that does is it allows you to have uh, the latency. In other words, your broadband speed is significantly higher, almost as fast as like a a normal uh, fiber optic connection kind of thing, or a normal cable connection, high-speed internet Even if you live in Botswana. Even if you live in Botswana. So what we're starting to see is, and this this is the thing that like, when history puts all this together, It'll sound like it was by design, and maybe it was, mm-hmm. but I don't think it was by human design, right? Probably not. When, when Elon Musk got the idea of doing the Starlinks, you know, he bought this yeah. company, basically. And he obviously liked the idea of providing internet, global internet. That was a huge business opportunity. And I think he, he, they're theorizing first-year profits from this company would be 30 to $50 billion wow. because so much of the planet is underserved. It's incredible, right? Uh, but then you, incredible. but then you have the pandemic uh, come around, and then you have people moving out of the cities, that which is going to be it is definitely a mega trend that's not going to slow down. You, then you're going to have uh, you know despite what it's people like the perfect good storm despite what Jerry Seinfeld says about essentially New York not ever you know he got real mad when people have said well look the net people moving out versus moving in and all that and Jerry took it an offense. Well, I get it because he loves New York City, but at the end of the day, people are moving out of the densely populated areas. Maybe originally from the pan because of the pandemic, but the real reason was is because their uh, jobs allowed them to. There's all these companies, especially in the financial sector, who mandated that you have to have a physical location. You have to come to work. That means if you want to you know, be having the best paid jobs, you have to live in an extremely expensive area of the country called New York City or thereabouts, which again, all that led to more, frankly, cost, more cost of housing, more cost of taxes. And, and whole cities were formed around the idea, well, you know, in New York City, for example, we are the financial center of the universe, and people are going to have to live here. So we can charge them really as much taxes as we want to, because if they want to live here and they have to have these jobs, they're going to have to be in these physical locations and working at these offices, buying this expense. So we can charge a lot in property taxes. We can charge a lot in sales tax. We can charge, And people will still pay it because they don't have a choice. Well, now what happened because of coronavirus and because of businesses realizing that remote work and uh, oftentimes be more efficient than uh, people in office. So the very, mo- you know, I use the word mooring line, but it's a great way to think of it. A mooring line is something that holds a boat to a dock. The very mooring lines that were keeping people dependent on these, you know, densely populated urban areas, those mooring lines have all been cut. And now when you add to this, the amazing thing that's going to happen for the Starlink internet, I think this personally mm-hmm. is the biggest untold story, I, I agree especially for real estate. Yeah. Think Absolutely. about it. I mean, 
I think this will be looked back on in history as like a great human migration and seriously. You know, the, it, it's just incredible. So, and and also, you and I are big Elon Musk fans just from a thinking big perspective. For sure. I mean, who thinks of that, right? <laughs> you read in business books, find something that's underutilized and, you know, invent that. <laughs> you know, so this is incredible. Like, who doesn't need, first of all, faster, but certainly the option to live further out or to choose, you know, it's just going to be a great migration. I think it's really but, interesting to watch. But with that said, wasn't the name of the thing that killed humanity and, uh, uh, what was that with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, Wasn't that remember. called Star Starnet or something? I know. I was thinking that Terminator. Terminator. Yeah, and then this is called Starlink. But we'll set aside the yeah, dystopian you know. possibilities <laughs> for now. Exactly. But but if you think about like for example, if you're selling in a rural area where people have only been considering your geographic area for second or third homes or vacation homes or that kind of thing, your world just changed and you don't know it. Yep. Because if Starlink basically makes it to certain areas of the country in like remote places, again, that are like where a lot of you guys maybe vacation, maybe you've always thought, well, when one day when I can retire, I'm going to live here full time, where the world sort of passed, uh, you know, the whole area by. I mean, Julie and I, like, we went this little, you know, we went on a walk in the woods up in the Smoky Mountains uh, last week, right? Mm-hmm. Gosh, I can't believe that was only last week. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and uh, we are in Murphy, North Carolina. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to know what the 90s was like, <laughs> go to Murphy, North Carolina. It was so weird seeing what – and it was a beautiful little town, yeah. little stores, you know, no Starbucks, no national chains. And um, it was it was actually, I don't know, strangely – I don't know. It was nice. <laughs> I liked it. That's I wrong. <laughs> it was weird. But it was weird. It was definitely It weird. was weird. Yeah, and there was again. There's uh, that's the effect of a housing market, and uh, essentially a whole community that's never had a big influx of jobs because Murphy is two hours from Atlanta. It's, you know, one hour from this, one hour from that. A bunch of crazy roads. Now, do you think people from uh, the big towns that are around that, you know, Atlanta, for example, do you think those people are taking a hard look at housing in that area? Well, I can tell you they are, and here's how I know. The average sale price in Murphy, like two years ago, was less than two fifty. It's like two twenty or two thirty. And now, looking at the things sell, it's more than double that. And we talked to this agent and other agents. Where are these buyers coming from? They're relocating from the major cities, and they're essentially living there full time, no longer as vacation homes and second homes. That's happening all over the country. Like there was another area that Julie and I really love called Carmel by the Sea. It's in the you know Big Sur area. Those of you in Central California, you know what I'm talking about. Well, Carmel was always a sort of second home vacation home for people in LA or San Francisco because you obviously wanted to live in San Francisco if you wanted a tech job. But now it turns out that area now is becoming a primary residence area uh, because of the, uh, the accessibility and the of high-speed internet, but mostly the, uh, the mindset change about where people can work and how they can work. Well, and evidence of that is our coaching clients who live in those areas and who do prospecting calls one of the common objections they're getting is, actually I'm moving into my second home and selling my urban house in fill in the blank Atlanta or Knoxville or wherever. you know. And so that's also driving inventory down, which drives prices up. So these things are all, of course, related. But this is a yeah. fascinating macro trend. It really, really is. And, well, and I mean, it's putting places like you know, the middle of the country that never had some kind of housing boom where you go, really, how can that be? I mean, even Columbus, Ohio, when we look at the values of our rental properties, I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, Columbus is a, Columbus isn't <laughs> a great Columbus isn't a great example because yeah. but if you were to say Hocking Hills, well, sure, sure, if, or if even like Delaware County or right. the, the secondary to the major city, more rural areas. Yeah, more rural areas. So the fact that you have to compete for stuff like that, 
But I'll tell you, back to your, to tie this all together to the uh, Starlink, one of our deciding factors being that we were two hours away from anything major was the fact that house has really kick-ass internet connection. Yep, it does. You know, it's like when, we didn't even want to see stuff that didn't have that. Right. Well, so, so look for these trends, guys. But Very cool. Again, this is going to open up more real estate opportunities. Oh, <laughs> you like the next topic? Yes. This is going to open up more real estate um, you know, opportunities for agents who maybe in areas of the countries where maybe you never would have thought there would be a viable opportunity there, or at least not something where you could actually start selling a lot of houses. And all that changes. The world's changed. It's going to continue to pivot in that direction because the momentum towards um, essentially these you know, post-pandemic approaches to life, they're just going to pick up speed. And I think it's incredibly exciting. Matter of fact, I'll go as far as to say, this is probably the best time to be in real estate, certainly in our lifetimes, because all these changes are going to allow and create more opportunities. And I remember when Julie and I started selling real estate in the 90s, and we brought to market in Columbus, Ohio, there was nobody doing a guaranteed home sale program. There was nobody doing a lot of the other things that we started introducing. This was back in the 90s. And we had other brokers and agents in general who were thinking that somehow we were doing something wrong by offering these programs. But where we learned about these programs was by going and traveling to the major cities across the country. And this was before coaching, right? This was before the internet. And so what we did is we just um, we drove around the country and we went and shadowed some of the top agents, I think three or four of them, mm-hmm. and we looked to see what common elements they had. Um, and they all had guaranteed home sale programs. They all had other things, uh, IVRs and things like that. And that's what we brought back to Columbus. And when we started doing those things in Columbus, we had other you know, brokers. We were with Remax. We had brokers and agents who tried to turn us into the division of real estate, who tried to get us in trouble, who did everything complete. just the, the, the pushback from Julie and I introducing these changes that have already been proven to work in other major markets, but because Columbus was basically behind the times and because the market there didn't want things to change, we got all kinds of pushback for years. We did basically through our entire real estate careers. When Julie and I started adding staff, we had, obviously, we were selling hundreds of houses per year. Uh, we sold you know over 100 houses our first year. And then we started marketing the fact that we had a team. Yes, Julie and I had a team. Of course, we did back in the 90s. And we got pushed back for that too. <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. Everything that we would introduce to the local market was something that other people would see as a you know existential threat, and so they would push back to the point where um, sometimes we even had to deal with it. The division of real estate would ask us about something or just all this Mickey Mouse that's happening. So why am I telling you this? Because normally what happens is changes don't occur because the the embeds, in essence, the powers that be don't want the changes to happen. And it takes something like a pandemic or, frankly, a Starlink satellite system to make it so that those powers that were able to keep things the way they were because that's the way they want them to be because that's how they make money ultimately and how they keep their power. But when you have these big, truly disruptive things happen, that's when the world pivots. You look for those things in your lifetime and you and you know lean into those things and you're going to you know, be way ahead of the curve. The problem is, is a lot of people in real estate, you're, you know, they're skeptics. They're trying to hold back. They don't want things to change. That's going to be ultimately a recipe for failure. And when I look in real estate in general, and now the next topic you guys are going to love, I found this one just for Julie. And okay, this next article is going to be, these are the uh, 10 best locations in the United States for you and UFO enthusiasts to buy a home. That's a real list. That's a real list. (laughs) But before we get to the first one, um, 
So guys, look, if you're not seriously looking at eXp Realty, that is going to be the biggest wave in residential real estate. Now, I know not everyone talks about it. You know, Zillow gets the headlines, that's for sure. Uh, but the reality of it is, is this, as it's relevant to a vast majority of the real estate agents, not just the United States and the world, when eXp Realty comes to your country and they're going to be opening up offices all over the world, you know, opening up countries, basically, there's a guy named Michael Vadez that's working for eXp that's expanding all over the world. And just recently, we've expanded, eXp Realty has expanded to five different countries. Have your mind open to what eXp Realty is really going to do to the traditional power structure that, you know, in, in the brokerage industry, it's completely revolutionizing it. If you look at the stock, it's traded on NASDAQ. At the beginning of this year, it was traded for like eight bucks. And now I think it's trading for around $60. Wall Street is waking up to the fact that this is going to be the biggest revolution that's going to happen in the brokerage industry, just like Starlink is going to be the biggest uh, evolution that's going to happen with regards to people having true mobility. Or frankly, how the you know stupid coronavirus has opened up the possibilities for people to no longer be tethered to these maybe less desirable places to live. You know, I think all of this is going to be continuing to build momentum. In addition to that, you have the demographics that are on our size, downsizing baby boomers, you know, Generation X, which are their peak earning years, Generation Z, Generation Y, all of these really, you know, billions of humans that are going to need a place to live, right? So be where the puck is going to be, to quote our own old friend Wayne Gretzky, when you're thinking about where you're going to be planting your flag into the future. If you want to talk to Julie and I about joining our EXP family, do consider texting me directly so we can have that conversation. 512-758-0206. 512-758-0206. So Julie and I have been looking for... Um, topics that would make you guys laugh, but also raise an eyebrow. And so we like to share with you on Sunday, especially the things that like probably will happen this year because everything else happened, right? Because it's 2020. Right. Pandemic, uh, fear of a depression, uh, Sasquatch sightings. You had the locusts return. I mean, there's all these other murder things. Murder hornets. Don't worry about them. And so Julie and I were making this list of all these <laughs> things. Yeah, murder hornets. I think we're expecting a big asteroid right around the election. Right. That's true. We'll yeah, see how it goes. Exactly. <laughs> so we, Julie and I were making a list of all the crazy things that have happened this year. And the only thing that hasn't actually happened, and we, we actually had this joke back in April and May, you know, were UFO sightings. And then about mid-year in June or July, there started to be these reports that came out that the uh, U.S. government through the Air Force has actually been tracking actual honest-to-God UFO sightings. And some of those videos were released that weren't supposed to be released. They were leaked. From and then the, the Pentagon. From right? the Pentagon. And I mean, they got, this, this is not like made-up late-night TV watching on no. cable. Yeah, that's right. Well, it is. But this is the <laughs> <It> real thing. <laughs> right. So so anyway, we came across the – it was like, oh, of course there's going to be UFOs. So we've been staying on this UFO story just because if it doesn't happen this year, it's going to happen early next year. That's right. Okay, so Julie, you can read. This is right up your alley. Yeah, so these are the 10 best locations in the U.S. for UFO enthusiasts to buy a home. You guys are used to seeing top 10 housing lists, but this one's got a twist. Number one, just so you guys know. I don't know. Maybe you you add this to your advertising. But but you should read um, how they come up with the list. Okay, so. that's true. (laughs) Advertise it. Top 10 alien spotting. Okay. (laughs) I sold my house.com has recently released a list of different cities in the U.S. for alien enthusiasts to buy a home. Quote, in the hope of increasing their chances of spotting UFOs or extraterrestrial activity. According to a press release, the company reviewed data from the National UFO Reporting Center and compared those cities with real estate prices. Number one is Myrtle Beach. So those of you in South Carolina, you're number one on this. And guess who's number two? Columbus, Ohio. So when you're watching your Buckeye football game, you watch the skies as well, you might get double entertainment. Number three is Philadelphia, then Houston, 
uh, Tucson, Albuquerque, Dallas, Orlando, Phoenix, and Mesa. So uh, why does this matter? It goes on to talk about that Pentagon Read report it. in April. Uh, released, the Pentagon released three videos of UFOs. The videos were captured by U.S. Navy pilots. Um, the Department of Defense said, quote, after a thorough review, the department has determined that the authorized release of these unclassified videos does not reveal any sensitive capabilities or systems and does not impinge on any subsequent investigations of military airspace incursions by unidentified aerial phenomena. Let's see. Where's the rest? Uh, that's that's basically that's the, the gist of it. Yeah. yeah, but and you can watch these videos. They've been all over the internet. This one was clipped from CBS this morning, but um, I think probably could look it up. Pentagon um, UFO footage, and it is real Navy pilots talking about that, and yeah. they're they're really baffled. I, I think it's fascinating. It's very interesting videos. I watched a interview with the guy who was actually. Uh, flying that F-18 Hornet. Mm -hmm. An F-18 Hornet is a one-seater. A two-seater is what the Navy flies. I forget what that one is. Mm -hmm. F-15, I think. So, and the only reason I know that is because we have a coaching client who yep. used to fly F-18s and he it schooled me on all that. Yes. But so he, I sent that video to him when this came out and um, Legrand watched it and he said that uh, he's, he, he can listen to the banter that the pilots were having. And he said it was absolutely something you could tell by the words that they were using. He said it, they were, it, it was clearly something that they were... Um, authentically baffled by. Right, yeah. authentically baffled by, exactly. Yeah, I'm very interesting. And that, that's not the only thing that's been released this year about this, but I think it's the most um, solid. <laughs> so what else have you got? Okay, so now the, a couple other things, I think. And I just throw these in here because I thought they were somewhat interesting. Um, here's something I didn't even know about. So mm -hmm. that's kind of fun. I found an article that talks about like, so everyone's talking about making EV cars and the hybrid cars, which are basically a little gas, a little electric. Those things are getting faded out and you're seeing electric vehicles being, they're going to dominate pretty much everything that, so that horse has long left the stable. And so Porsche has been, um, and I didn't, again, I didn't even know about this. They've been trying to, with Mali, who makes internal engine parts, they're a German company as well, mm -hmm. they've been working on producing e-fuels. And now what an e-fuel is, and this is really the cool part, I should have you read this because it gets seriously nerdy, you'd like it. Well, it's basically a carbon neutral synthetic fuel. It doesn't use any Which is not electric, it's a fuel fuel. Right. Okay. So, so it says, uh, the oh, I see, the most common e-fuel is, I cannot pronounce that word. You want to try to? Oxymethylene. Yeah. Ether. Which can, be, which can be generated for gasoline and diesel, and, and diesel cars. OME, oh, there we go, <laughs> the abbreviation, mm -hmm. uh, can be produced by using CO2 from the air in a process that combines CO2 and hydrogen generated from renewable energy sources like wind or solar farms. The resulting fuel can be distributed using existing infrastructure and af uh, after being used in, uh, in an engine results are fewer particulates than, uh, than conventional fuels as well. The challenge is generating the necessary hydrogen in a manner that makes e-fuels commercially viable. So here's the punchline to all of this. So they have, an, an, and I, was, I watched a video about this because you guys maybe know or don't know, I'm a car nerd. This is not E10. This is not, you know, the fuel that uh, you could get at uh, some uh, gas stations where it's essentially from corn. Because that stuff, by the way, is actually really bad for internal engines. Uh, it, it, it's basically an alcohol. And that alcohol can cause internal uh, combustion engines to not last very long because of the residue. But what this is, is something that is as efficient as normal fuel. Um, and essentially, it's going to be made, and they're theorizing here, for you know, virtually nothing. 
uh, by comparison to dinosaur juice. In addition to that, it doesn't really have any of the negative side effects of stuff coming out of the exhaust. Now, where do you go with all this? So this is a fascinating um, story to me because you have all these electric cars that are coming out, all these you know governments that are mandating no EV or no gasoline-powered cars like California said, by 2035. And so in California, if you want to sell cars, you have to have all electric cars. Uh, and then you have Porsche coming out and saying, and also there's other manufacturers too, they're saying, look, we can produce essentially an e-fuel, which is a, you know, it's a man-made fuel that doesn't come from the earth, that doesn't require all sorts of, you know, harmful byproducts when it comes out of the tailpipe. And it actually is more viable and easier to make and cheaper to make than electric uh, cars. And still carbon neutral. And still carbon neutral. And you neutral. know what else? Yeah. Think about all those electric batteries too. Yeah, I know exactly yeah, what happens so. to those. And not just for cars, but you had an article related to this about planes as well could use this. Yeah, I did. And so actually the planes one was really crazy. So uh, we're sharing all these things with you because Julie and I like to look for our content like this because when you just focus on the same thing all the time, in our case, real estate and real estate coaching and things like that, you can easily lose your edge and your uh, mental acuity. And you hear Julie and I struggling with that every Sunday, unless we have Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Two or three that's, that's from years of talking too much to real estate people about real estate. So what we do is we look for things that are, that are intentionally designed to expand our thinking. And nothing does that more than how fast technology is uh, really changing our lives. And like I said, and I really do, Julie and I talk about this, it is, this is the best time to be in real estate in at least the past 30 years. I can't speak to any longer than that because before that I was not in real estate, so I can't really speak to it. But now, absolutely for sure. So here's a really crazy one. And um, so Airbus turns hydrogen as energy, a promise for batter, uh, of battery fades. Airbus is backing away from battery power in favor of pursuing hydrogen as a primary propulsion source for future aircraft development over concerns that the battery technology will not advance quickly enough to adapt to large airlines. The airframer revealed that the conceptual designs, uh, two based on conventional air prop and twin uh, jet airframes, plus a third uh, featuring a blended wing fuselage design as it commits to exploring a hydrogen-based uh, zero-emission aircraft for potential services as entry point of 2035. You guys noticing these dates are concurrent with the, mm-hmm. um, the goal of not having any uh, you know, gas-powered cars in California? So I'm not going to read the rest of this article, but here's what the gist of it is, is you're going to see, again, more kinds of new, um, essentially planes, technologies that's going to make it so more people can travel farther, faster, cheaper. And this goes to the idea that in housing, you're going to see more people willing to and wanting to live outside of the densely populated areas. So then the next question is going to be, how are people going to get there? Well, we're sharing with you some insights into that. And there's a lot of um, also, this is really, I didn't have, I don't have an article for this today, but the other thing I'm watching is the idea that finally George Jetson's going to prove, prove it out that we're going to have flying cars. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, now they're coming at actually mostly out of China. They're developing these uh, human you know, drones, basically. You can fly into a drone. You can, you, so you'll have a drone land. You can pop into the drone. It'll be like a, you know. Um, Good. Yeah, exactly. Probably never have to teach Zoe how to actually drive. Or fly. Okay. And you just put in where you want it to go and the drone flies you there. And a lot of these drones are, so far, they're only designed to carry one person, but you can see how they'd be designed to pair. Sure. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. I don't know, but, you know, the technology is moving very quickly. And you and I have talked a lot about perhaps there is a new kind of renaissance going on. Yep. And maybe the pandemic was the catalyst for it. And maybe that's going to be the story, you know, a decade from now, five years from now, looking back. 
that it, you know it took a global pandemic to jump light years into these new technologies. I think that's fascinating. Right. And so what makes what becomes not usually things don't become completely obsolete and irrelevant, but they become more inefficient. And there's a last article I won't bore you guys with all of it, but the gist of it is is that the theory there's a theory going on that these big mass uh, you know, mostly retail centers are going to be essentially uh, foreboding forever. They're not going to sell. They're not going to be able to be, uh, you know, no one's going to want to make them into anything. And if you look at it from a commercial perspective, if you take a bit uh, like a, a mall that was a retail mall and, you know, people are saying, well, make the old JC pennies into warehouses. Well, if you, the value of a, uh, a formal retail uh, building and space, when you convert it to warehouse, the value is cut by like, I don't remember the percent, but dramatically. In other words, a warehouse is not worth as much as a normal yeah, retail your space. Your cost per square foot changes. It's diminished. By these are a huge amount. Right. Still. And so you're seeing all these old – so you're going to see essentially the, the death rattle of all these old sort of ways of uh, living and existing and all the rest of it. So you And then you're going to see at the same time you're going to see where the momentum is going technologically and how people are starting to expand their thinking in terms of how they, they want to live on this planet. So if you find yourself stuck – selling something that nobody wants um, and you're not and you're wondering why it's become harder it has become harder because there's less demand for what you're selling and if you have an essence where you're going to have all this delevering of all these highly leveraged retail you know outlets and buildings and whatnot you're then going to deal with a you know obviously a lot of financial issues as well and and one last article i came across actually um uh, uh, what's his name the guy stubes the guy that developed here. Federico Stubes. Federico Stu- No, not Federico. No. Fe- uh, yeah, anyway. Friedel. Friedel Stubes, yeah. Sorry. So I watched a really interesting video about luxury. Mm-hmm. And he was creating, um, he was essentially talking about where we live, Dorado. And his, and this thing was like an hour. and mm-hmm. But it was really fascinating. And so he, where we live in Puerto Rico is, uh, you guys can Google it, it's Dorado, Puerto Rico. We live in this area. It's essentially a Ritz-Carlton uh, community. And this area was originally developed by Rockefellers. Rockefellers. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at this on a map or if you study, it's 1,300 acres. But it's, it's basically, people call it a resort. I, I mean, it is a resort for sure. But it is so beautifully designed. And it was designed by Rockefeller way back when. So what Estubes has been talking about doing and what he is doing is he wants to make Dorado in particular essentially one of the most desirable uh, places on planet Earth to travel to. And he's talking about all the different things that goes into his thinking about making that happen. And I thought he said so many things that were fascinating, but one of the things he said was especially fascinating was how much the expectations of what, what you get uh, for luxury has changed. Mm-hmm. And he's talked about, he showed slides of what Dorado looked like back in the 60s, for example. And he was pointing out different, you know, hotel projects and whatnot where they were considered luxury. And then he was showing, you know, talking about what those, what luxury actually was back in the 70s and the 80s. And it's changed so radically so fast. And so that reminded me of back when Julie and I were selling real estate. There was this area called Muirfield. And Muirfield was this most desirable place to live in central Ohio. Golf course community. Yeah, they know if they're golf nerds, right? If they're not. Yeah, that's true. Like we weren't. Right. Right. So in the 70s and 80s, it became the most desirable area. Then all of a sudden, these new communities crept up that redefined what luxury were. And that area went through what could only be described as a recession, if not a depression. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to live there. The houses got neglected. Nobody was reinvesting. 
And I, I wonder as, you know, you and I have had these life experiences, right? And we see these things that are happening right now in the economy on a macro level. I wonder how many people are still stuck. And so there was a really great um, team, a couple, mm-hmm. that sold in Muirfield. I remember. And they'd done really well when the market was really strong that there. That was their market. That, that was, was. You know, if you were going to list or buy there. Do you remember the last you name? Know. I just remembered it. Okay. Parish. That's right. Parish. Yep. Chip. And Sue, yeah, yep, yeah. yep, and they're fantastic agents. Yeah, great agents. They're probably still in business. I haven't Googled them, I think. but yeah, I'm sure they are. But that's where they sold real estate. They had dominant market share, um, and then when that market started to turn around, they still, you know, had market share there. But their business went down too. And, and now I'm sure it's come back. They're very smart and successful. All the rest of it, I'm sure they're fantastic. But what I'm trying to tell you is, I learned something from observing that because Julie and I were taking some listings in Muirfield, and we saw how painful it was to get showings, let alone get the property huge sold. Days on the market. Yeah, huge. It was painful. People were losing tons and tons of money. This is when we were in our formidable years of real estate. So this was a real live learning experience for us. Mm-hmm. And I've never forgotten that because where were those people moving? They were moving out to New Albany. Yep. They were moving up to Powell. You know, they're moving brand to these neighborhoods. brand new neighborhoods, different designs, more modern. I think this is when like two story foyers started to be a thing, you know, just different, yeah. a different option for them. Less, and still a kick-ass golf course. Right. Well, all kinds of different things. And then how fast does the term luxury change? It changes. And this was a uh, Stube's point. It changes really frequently. Like every 10 years, the expectation is, is that whatever luxury is, it's going to evolve. And who knows what's going to, now, why am I talking about luxury? Because that same mindset <laughs> I don't know what's going on out there. So that same mindset, thats if you guys can hear that, that's Zoe. It's Sunday. She just she can be crazy on Sunday. It's fine. So I think she just discovered the ice cream delivery. Oh. Which hopefully isn't soup by now. But we'll yeah. See. Well, so w- when you think about how luxury quickly redefines itself, you think about how fashion quickly redefines itself. You need to redefine yourself too. And, it, and if you find yourself basically stuck, you can go. Okay. You guys hear that? listeners so she's freaking out because she just dropped some grapes and she's worried about the dogs eating them so she's being a good girl because in case you didn't know this dog shouldn't eat grapes so as we're we're talking about all these things and we're trying to expand your thinking and getting you to think about things that are bigger um, than where you are now we're doing this because we do it for ourselves and we're always trying to expand our thinking and how we consider things we're always trying to challenge what our preconceived notions are about anything in life. And on the Sunday show, you guys get to listen to us, you know, essentially trying to load in new software and new ways of thinking. Julie and I are nerd. I mean, she's 49, I'm 50. And we know how incredibly important it is at all times in your life to make sure you're not becoming complacent. But it's especially important now in this era that we're going through with all these different changes. Because what's going to happen is if you don't evolve, you're going to find yourself selling in an area where houses are harder to sell. You're going to find yourself in an area where, you know, maybe people don't want to live anymore and you're going to then suffer a needlessly uh, financial hardship because you weren't being adaptable because you didn't see the change or at least didn't acknowledge it. That's happening on every single front in our lives right now. And I think it's been, you know, definitely been um, motivated by the pandemic and that momentum's just going to continue. So expand your thinking. Think about every aspect of your life. Consider doing a massive upgrade of everything. Uh, maybe where you live, maybe all your clothes, maybe everything in your life needs to have a hard reset. So then you can start with 2021 with a new set of everything, a new set of beliefs, a new expectation. Maybe you want to change houses. Maybe you want to you know, get rid of all of your office furniture. It's in your home office and get new stuff. I, look, 
anything and everything. You need to start expanding your mind intentionally. Otherwise, it's too easy to get stuck in a rut. And then that rut becomes a ditch and that ditch becomes a hole. And then that's a hole you never get out of. And that happens emotionally, physically, you know, certainly mentally, you know, as, as far as intellectually, it can happen spiritually, it can happen with your family. So challenge yourself not to be complacent. And look, guys, I know it's hard. <laughs> I know it is. It's easy to get stuck in a rut. And Julie and I used to call that the golden cage, right? You could have this really nice life where everything sort of just falls in line. But then you sort of like you, every day becomes like Groundhog Day. And every day is a repeat of the previous day. And then you look up and 10 years has passed or 20 years have passed. And you've really not done much with your life because you've been sort of stuck in this rut and didn't even realize it. That's the part. That is the problem. It's a blessing in a way, but it's also a problem because then you can't make that time back up. So as you're entering into the new year, and I know this is fourth quarter and all of you guys are hopefully drilled down and focused on, and you're listening to us in our podcast on Sundays, or I'm sorry, during the week, and you know that the fourth quarter is the best time actually to be drilling down in your business. Uh, if you don't know that, make sure you're listening to our daily podcast. And if you're not a member of our free coaching program, make sure you text the word survival to 31996, text the word survival to 31996. But guys, this, like the economy and like everything else that's going on, is through sometimes, you know, through trial and tribulation, through just, you know, hardship, through pain and suffering, but also through pleasure and brilliance and love. This is a time of a some kind, and we don't have it all figured out yet. Julie and I are referring to it as a renaissance, but there is definitely a rebirth that's happening um, for the world. And you should be part of it. You should realize that everything is going to change and change right along with it. Otherwise, you're going to lose a decade or more. And you're going to look back and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be disappointed in yourself for not having actually embraced the changes opposed to try to fight against them. And I know if you're living in a small town like Murphy or some most of the countries like Murphy, right? I know you're not necessarily relating to what I'm saying, but here's my suggestion for you. So if you're in you know, one of these small towns and you're not necessarily yet seeing all the things that we're talking about um, play out in your local community, you need to be first, like Julie and I were when we sold real estate, introducing these types of thoughts to your local real estate community, realizing that, you know what, I need to find out, like how powerful would it be, for example, as a listing agent, if you were to go and you were to find out, and I'll get you the name of it again here, I'm looking it up. If you guys were to go to Starlink.com and you were to find out when Starlink was going to be available in your local community. Now, what you could then do is you could then talk to your sellers. What you could then obviously determine whether your listings were uh, compatible with Starlink. Evidently, you need a clear vision of the North Sky. I read about this already. So assuming it does, maybe it makes sense if there's no like, you know, if the contracts are transferable, that you actually install Starlink on your listings or at least have the uh, have it all worked out so whoever buys it then can install Starlink or have it working. Because this is what people are going to be talking about in 2021. They're going to be talking about because of Starlink and other technologies, how essentially, you know, mostly cursory uh, communities around the country are now becoming prime targets for people to move to. Real estate's gotten too expensive. People are now having the ability to be mobile. People can work remotely. Kids can go to school remotely. You're going to see start seeing you know Amazon deliveries happen in ways and places that they haven't been able to be delivered before. Um, I mean, even here in Puerto Rico, they're talking about bringing a Whole Foods here, right? So look, guys, the world is changing incredibly fast. Change with it. And use some of the insights that we're giving uh, to you on this podcast, especially on Sunday, minus maybe the Bigfoot stuff. Unless, of course, you find somebody who's a Bigfoot fan, <laughs> then maybe you should tell 
them if you happen to live in one of those top Bigfoot communities. That's a you know put it in the MLS. That that alone would be funny, wouldn't it? <laughs> voted number one, you know, Columbus, Ohio voted number two big area to see. Oh, that was UFOs, right? To see UFOs is in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know, maybe right? Could be fun. But expand your thinking, challenge your own dogma so that you're not somebody who's going to let these opportunities that only present themselves during these greatest times of change pass you by. Because remember this, and I'm going to leave today's show with this. The greatest fortunes in the history of humanity, um, and fortunes can be defined different ways, but the greatest fortunes in the history of humanity have always been made during the greatest times of change. And even in your own life, if you think about the greatest companies that you can think of, make a list of them in your head right now, the top five, all of them basically were birthed during great times of change, technological revolution, even if you want to go back in history, the industrial revolution, all the other types of things. You are in one of those times now. Right now, we are in one of the greatest uh, times of change of all of humanity for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, the culmination of a whole bunch of efforts technologically, then combined with the pandemic, then mostly combined with people's willingness to change their behaviors with regards to how they live, where they live. All of this stuff has changed. Are you going to be party to the what comes next? Or are you going to be somebody that tries to hold on by your fingernails to what was? Because if you're the what was, you're going to regret it. There's no way you won't because you're going to see all these things that are going to change despite you despite you wanting them not to change. And you're going to have missed out on what could have been an incredibly different, new, creative, fantastic, fun, healthy, you know, wealthy life. Open your mind, guys. Don't be afraid. Stay attached to people that are trying to elevate you. Do your best to avoid politics. Do your best to avoid the news. Do your best to avoid anything that makes you feel frustrated or scared or small. Completely shut all that stuff off. I know we're like less than a month away or whatever from the election. And look, regardless of who uh, wins or who loses, the fact is the show will still go on. There'll still be people buying or selling real estate. There'll still be money that's going to be made. There'll still be money that's flowing. It might flow to different people, but the reality of it is, is nothing's going to fundamentally change with regards to the business opportunities that you have to help people buy and sell real estate. So stay glued into that. Don't be so easily manipulated. And if you find yourself feeling frustrated or feeling scared and you realize that maybe there's too much input that's happening on behalf of the media, you're consuming too much of that stuff, you guys have to realize that all sides of the political arguments are designed to scare you are designed to make you feel small and ultimately make you feel dependent. Vote for this guy because if you don't, these bad things are going to happen. Vote for this guy, same thing, right? They're trying to make you feel fearful. When you feel fearful, your natural circadian brain is going to cause you to go into a fight or flight mode, which means you're going to have essentially a myopic life. You're going to think small, act small, make small moves. Look at your own consumers. You know, how many of them, how many of you are hearing, well, we're going to wait to after the election? Like, really? You're going to wait to after election to buy a house. Exactly. Why does that matter? <laughs> you know, it doesn't. But this is it's because they are having a um, an unchecked, you know, physiological, if not emotional reaction to something that's causing them fear. Now, why is it causing them fear? No damn good reason other than they're over consuming the information that's designed to cause them fear. You guys understanding what I'm saying here? So be proactive, not obviously, not only with your lead generation, your real estate business in your life, but also be proactive, defending yourself against anything or anyone that try to minimize your potential, make you feel dependent. That's right there. If I could leave you guys with one thing, that's the one thing. Make it so that when you're 
approaching your life and you're approaching how you think and how you want your life to be in 2021 and beyond, allow yourself to think big. Be uncomfortable. Uh, if you're not uncomfortable when you're thinking big, if you didn't hear at least a couple of the stories today and raise an eyebrow, then that was your, you know, your, well, first of all, maybe we need to bring some more crazier stories on Sunday. That might be true. But if you did, ask yourself, where did you raise your eyebrow? That skepticism is one of the things, whenever you feel that doubtful feeling, whenever you feel that skeptical feeling, that is almost always where your growth needs to be. So wherever you're resisting, you're resisting the most is where your growth needs to be. On our normal podcast, if we're telling you about different things to do for lead generation and you feel that inner skeptic coming in and telling you, I don't have to do that. I can do this. I can shortcut this. I can do this. That's too hard. That is where your growth needs to be because that's where your ego is kicking in and holding you back. I hope you guys realize that. This right now is going to be the greatest era of probably all of humanity. That's what we really think. And we see other people starting to share that thought too. This right now could be for you and your family and your loved ones and the people you care about the greatest era of your entire lives. That's just a reality of what's happening based on all these evolutionary things that are transpiring all around us. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Embrace it. Feel lucky. Well, maybe lucky isn't the right word, but feel blessed. How about that? So feel blessed to be on this planet at this time. And if you're not feeling that way, start unplugging, start removing inputs, start you know disallowing people in media and other things to have influence on you um, because you're missing the boat and you're going to be stuck again in a an era uh, that's not going to be relevant and certainly not going to be beneficial to your future. Hopefully all this makes sense. That is our Sunday podcast. As irreverent as it normally, uh, as we always hope it to be, hopefully we surprised you with some of our topics. Uh, in the meantime, if you guys need us for anything, you can always text me directly. And my cell phone number is 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. If you want to uh, email me, or I'm sorry, text me directly, don't call because I won't answer. I never answer, but I will respond to texts. If you want to talk with Julie and I about joining our EXP family, do absolutely text me directly, 512-758-0206. If you want to join our free coaching program, just text the word SURVIVAL to 31996. Text the word SURVIVAL to 31996. Thanks and have a fantastic day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>